name? Père Noël. Babo Natale. Père's Nicole. Papa Gijo. Hey there, and happy holidays. It's Karen Bellinger here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler, welcoming you back to Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, overtime, and across cultures. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited it's the year-end holidays, at last. Who doesn't need a little peace and good cheer right about now? And if nothing else, the train wreck formerly known as the year 2020 is finally almost over. Despite all that's happened around the world, by far the best thing to come out of this year has been starting this podcast journey with all of you. So thank you so much for joining us each week as we rev up the old time machine and explore our world by examining the work we do as human beings and what it means well beyond the universal need to just make a living. Our episode today is a special holiday job fair. It's the story of the department store, or mall Santa, a quintessentially American, consumer-driven phenomenon rooted in one of the world's most ancient, cherished religious holidays. As always, we'll explore the origins of the job and find out who its big players were, and of course, we'll consider its lasting legacy on the modern industry of holiday joy. Today's presentation is going to be a little bit different, though. Um, Rather than a typical dominant interview, we're going to organize everything around a narrated story instead. That said, our good friend, art historian and iconologist Sheila Hoffman is going to pop in to unravel some of the key symbols around Christmas and Santa, old and new. So pull up your comfy chair, set out the milk and cookies, cozy up to the fire for a fascinating look at an American retail industry staple. And no, we're not actually starting at the tail end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, even though that is, technically, Santa's big commercial debut in America each year. Instead, train your ears on a small shoemaking town in Massachusetts in the winter of 1890. In 1865, James Colonel Jim Edgar pawned off his watch to pay for his fare across the Atlantic to America. In doing so, he left his native land, Edinburgh, Scotland, behind. Born as the son of farmers, Edgar's parents had high hopes he'd follow in their footsteps or pursue a life of ministry. Edgar, he had other plans. He'd be a traitor. He arrived in Boston with little more than $2.50 to his name hopeful and ready to prove to himself that he was the businessman he'd always dreamed he could be. He worked at a dry goods firm for a time, reportedly earning more money than he'd ever earned. This sparked a love for business and the new country he'd arrived at for the rest of his life. Though a brush with poor health sent him back home for a time, Edgar returned to the United States in the late 1860s, settling in Providence, Rhode Island, where he met his wife and began a family. For a decade, he worked for a wholesale retail firm until the time came when Edgar's business ambitions finally got the better of him, and he went off on his own to open the Edgar and Reynolds store with a co-worker in March of 1878 in the city of Brockton, Massachusetts. Renamed the Boston Store in 1880, the dry goods retail shop flourished and made James Edgar both wealthy and a staple figure in his community. 
Edgar was a beloved and natural showman, frequently placing himself at the center of attention, dressing in costumes of all sorts, including George Washington, a sea captain, and a clown, just to name a few. Edgar was known to walk the streets of his city, his magnetic charisma and theatrical antics earning him the nickname, the P.T. Barnum of Brockton. Though he certainly liked the attention, Edgar was always focused on those in his community, the people of Brockton, his customers, and his employees. The turnover rate in his store was so low due to the superb work culture and high wages that Edgar reportedly remarked, the only trouble in getting new faces behind my counters is that none will leave and none die. Edgar's legacy was already well cemented even before he made the momentous decision to head over to Boston in 1890 and request that a Santa suit be tailored for him. In the back half of the 19th century, Santa Claus was already an icon of the advertising world. Though Coca-Cola takes credit in creating the modern image of old St. Nick back in the 1930s, the truth is that Santa had been making the rounds in popular print for decades before. In 1862, indeed during the American Civil War, a German immigrant named Thomas Nast put out a work entitled Christmas Eve, which depicted a portrait of two people, man and wife, each in a circle separated by war. In one circle, the wife sits alone by a window in winter, and in the circle next to her, the husband sits by a campfire, beaten down and looking at photographs of his family. You might be thinking, so what? It just sounds like a not-so-holly-jolly Civil War Christmas. But there's something truly unique in this drawing. Above the circle depicting the wife is a distant rooftop. And on this rooftop is none other than King Jolly himself, peering down a chimney top about to deliver some goodies. And that's not all. Above the circle of the husband illustration is, yep, Santa Claus, and he's gliding across a blanket of snow in a sleigh, reindeer and all. Even though the character wasn't front and center in the piece, it was quite possibly the first portrayal of the modern Santa Claus in public media. Thomas Nast, also famous for the creation of the Democratic donkey and Republican elephant images, continued to experiment with illustrations of Santa throughout and after the Civil War. One piece, depicting Santa visiting a wartime camp, was included on the cover of Harper's Weekly, the publication at which he was employed. For the next 30, 30 years, Nast developed Santa's look, pushing it towards the one we all know today. He changed his coat from tan to red and even began to add story elements to the character, perhaps even being the first to give Santa his famed North Pole address. What's that zip code again, anyway? Nast, father of the American cartoon, passed away in 1902, but his contribution to Santa's image had a huge impact on pop culture. So what was so special about Edgar's decision to have a suit tailored that day in 1890? Well, imagine this. You're a kid born in the late 1870s, early 1880s. You've grown up in a typical Christian American household. In the time before television and radio, print was king. All of your news, jokes, stories, and symbols were primarily obtained via print media. That means all of those iconic Santa images from Thomas Nast would have been all around you, especially if you were from a more urban area. You would have grown up seeing Santa and all of his associated Christmas magic mostly on the page. His likeness would have graced countless magazines, toys, and figurines. You would have grown up singing about him in songs or hearing his story in poems. Then one day, walking along the aisles of an upscale department store, you stop in your tracks. In front of you is a large gentleman with a long white beard donning a bright red suit. 
you can't believe what you're seeing. It's the real-life Santa Claus, sprung from the pages of a storybook. He laughs boldly, and you swear it's exactly how it sounded in your dreams. That's precisely what happened to little Edward Pearson one day in December 1890. All of a sudden, right in front of me, I saw Santa Claus. I couldn't believe my eyes, Pearson said, recounting the event decades later. James Edgar had become Santa in the flesh, and in doing so, became the first ever department store Santa. For kids all across the city, it was a Christmas miracle. Matt was just the beginning. What began as an experimental driver of holiday cheer in the Boston store soon became a bona fide sensation. Awestruck kids from all over began to form lines outside of Edgar's store, filling the streets of Brockton with eager kids wanting to catch some time with the fat man himself. Families poured in from Providence, New York, the greater Boston area. Edgar had to eventually hire a second man to play St. Nick to keep up with the insane demand. News of the Boston store's immediate and enormous success by having a living, breathing Santa grace their store soon began to spread to other retail locations across the country. Sales boomed everywhere the character made an appearance. James Edgar passed away in September of 1909. And by then, the department store Santa wasn't just a common business ploy. It was already a deeply entrenched holiday institution, at least in the United States. Edgar's legacy of joy and philanthropy continued to shape the city of Brockton and beyond. His funeral was held in his apartment in town. Hundreds of children went to pay their respects. And not long after Edgar's death, there wasn't a store in the country that didn't hire Santa Claus to pay them visits every December. Even as the media landscape, both in the US and abroad, began to change. Businesses grew and corporations began to make unthinkable amounts of money. And how did these new corporations make use of Old St. Nick? Relentlessly. Who the heck are you? What are you talking about? I'm Santa Claus. No, you're not. Uh, why, of course I am! <laughs> you're Santa! What song did I sing for you on your birthday this year? Uh, happy birthday, of course! <laughs> uh, so, uh, how old are you, son? Four. You're a big boy. What's your name? Paul. And uh, what can I Paul, get you for Christmas? Don't tell him what you want. He's a liar. Let the kid talk. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? Just cool it, Zippy. You sit on a throne of lies. Look, I'm not kidding. You're a fake. I'm a fake? Yes. How'd you like to be dead? Huh? No, he's kidding. You stink. I think you're gonna have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. Okay, good. <gasps> <gasps> he's an imposter! He's a fake! Actually, Lucy, my trouble is Christmas. I just don't understand it. Instead of feeling happy, I feel sort of let down. I know how you feel about all this Christmas business, getting depressed and all that. It happens to me every year. The greatest gift of this episode is that we are joined by our good friends and expert in art history and iconology, Dr. Sheila Hoffman, who's very kindly agreed to talk to us a little bit about Christmas and the symbolism behind it as a holiday and Santa Claus particularly. Sheila, thank you so much for coming to join us today. Thank you very much for having me and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. 
same back to you. And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. Um, swatting up for this episode, I didn't realize really how deep the roots of Christmas were. Oh, it's crazy. What I can't realize is that there aren't like Christmas scholars, like academic positions I in know. actual universities where someone's like a noted Christmas scholar. There should be. There well, should be. I think maybe there is. And, and, you know, this kind of brings us right to the meat of our topic today that, you know, it, it's been so commercialized, right? Mm-hmm. As yeah. A, a purchasing frenzy. And Santa Claus and whatever brand can make use of Santa Claus best and all of that. So yeah, it's a very interesting question and maybe we should go do a deep dive into academia.edu or something after (laughs) we talk because I agree with you. The only works by academic scholars that I could find having to do with Christmas are, you know, squarely in the popular history category at best. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's no surprise because do we really want to ruin Christmas with some like 700 page dissertation? Please know, no. Like, Please God no. But then again, we don't, nobody reads dissertations anyway, so maybe it wouldn't oh, be God. any harm. But um, right. I, yeah, I, I'm going to give you my dissertation for Christmas just for that. Oh, would you? <laughs> oh, I could give you mine too, but we might both get a hernia swapping it with each other, That's just true. knowing what they tend to look like. Maybe we should, we should just have a, a reading of excerpts over a couple of bottles of something really tasty to, to get our, ourselves through Now it. you are really going back to my Christmas <laughs> traditions. Uh, my mother was very Lutheran. And so every night during Advent, we sat around the Advent wreath and we opened the Advent calendar and we had a reading from the traditions of, you know, one of the four evangelists in the, <laughs> in the Lutheran tradition. So it was it was a lot. But at least we had hot cocoa. Oh, that's good. Did Santa make even a cameo on those Lutheran Christmas evenings? Uh, well, no, not really. It was very much a kind of a religious focus for that. But, you know, Puritans are Puritans, so. <laughs> that's true. That's I can say that because I grew up as one. <laughs> I have to say my childhood Christmas experiences were almost exclusively secular. <laughs> so I didn't have that experience as a kid myself. But... Now, now you're a mom, so uh, do you have any more recent stories that you might like to share with us to do with, yeah, sort of how Christmas goes in your household and, you know, what does your son think about Christmas and Santa? Well, it's it's funny because um, I, this maybe sounds a little Scrooge-like to uh, invoke another Christmas person, <laughs> but uh, we don't have really huge Christmases under the tree, and that that doesn't necessarily come from my Puritan upbringing. And I'm not saying Puritan; I was a Lutheran. You know, it's just just another one of the Christian groups out there. But um, we were quite poor growing up, and I was we were always very conscious of having anything was having enough. And I'm not saying that we had, you know, like an orange in our Christmas stocking and that was it. My mom worked really hard, actually. She took on a second job um, during, she took basically her Christmas vacation to take a second job to earn extra money so that we'd have gifts under the tree. And so I'm very conscious. We, I live, that was growing up in very West Coast in a very Scandinavian town in Oregon called Astoria. And um, now that I live in the East Coast, Christmas is big out here. It's huge and commercialized. And I don't buy into that as much, literally and figuratively. We definitely have enough things under the tree, but I don't feel like we have to 
you know, spend a mortgage payment in order to have a really lovely Christmas with family. And we're a small family, so uh, it's really about each other and connecting with each other and um, spending extra time with each other. So, like I said, that sounds a little bit like, you know, it doesn't maybe sound as joyful, but it does kind of bring it back to some of the, um, maybe some of the original tenets of Christmas and um, the joyful kind of being together on some of the darkest nights of the year <laughs> type of history. Exactly. I think that's very joyful. Uh, I mean, our consumer society in the United States, at least, which I, you know, is what we're really talking about specifically mm -hmm. here, is just out of control. You know, the landfills are full enough. And yeah. I find it interesting that I sometimes can't even remember what I got for Christmas the right. prior year as we're approaching <laughs> a new Christmas. And, you know, my, my kids ask me what I would like. And I say, honestly, I really don't want anything. And if right. you'd like to make me something, that's fantastic. You know, I also grew up without a whole lot. And my parents likewise worked hard to make it, mm -hmm. you know, a happy occasion. But um, my kids certainly have enough now. <laughs> right. And so, I, I love that that tradition of handmade things is coming back into, into being. Because, yeah. you know, that's really in many ways where a lot of our gift giving traditions started, whether it's, you know, here in the States or stemming back to Europe or, you know, there have been, even as a college student, uh, there was a good college um, story of, of Christmas where I had it overseas. I was studying in Strasbourg um, with some friends and my brother was studying in um, nearby Germany and uh, in Tübingen, which is interestingly where Martin Luther actually like nailed his theses on the door of the church to launch the reformation oh, of the right. Catholic church. Right. And so there's a strong Christian tradition to there. And Martin Luther himself has actually, uh, you know, been associated with some of the more modern Christmas traditions like lighted Christmas trees and giving specifically giving children gifts. But, you know, we didn't know any of that when we were 19, 20 years old and yeah. having Christmas for the first time away from family. And I was lucky to have my brother, but um, I brought a couple friends with me. We barely had any money for for food, for drinks, <laughs> for a Christmas tree. And um, we had a wonderful story of my brother handing me 20 uh, Deutschmarks. I didn't speak a lick of German, except for maybe Donka and maybe Tannenbaum. I don't know. <laughs> bitte, bitte. <laughs> bitte. All yes. you need to know is please and thank you. Please. Well, that and Ein Bier bitte, but you know. <laughs> So I went down to the plaza and with a friend of mine and we had our 20 Deutschmarks trying to speak in no terms whatsoever. And what made it more interesting was that the, the farmers selling the Christmas trees were the Schwabian farmers, you know, from the black, kind of the, the black woods out there, black forest. And um, their German was like a, of a completely different ilk anyway. So, <laughs> so your, your, your guidebook wasn't good. Yeah, happen. yeah, yeah. <laughs> We think we finally uh, convinced them to take our 20 Deutschmarks for the Christmas tree. And I'm pretty sure they were double that, but they were taking pity on us. <laughs> so I'm we sure get it. They thought you were very sweet and enthusiastic. Oh. <laughs> well, cute little American college girls, right? Exactly. But we, we got it back to our dorm room set it up in the communal kitchen and realized we didn't have anything to decorate it with. So we went about making popcorn and throwing it on the tree and putting our earrings and our necklaces all over the tree. We didn't have a topper. So we grabbed an American flag that my brother had in his room because he was in the military service and we tied it to the top of the tree. <laughs> Then, oh my gosh. Well, that was before you would worry about <laughs> some sort of danger befalling right? you, too, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, my, my brother was so fun because he came from the BX, you know, the um, 
the on the on the base military uh, grocery store where you could get all the American goods, right? And so he came back with things like Doritos and Reese's peanut butter cups, which at the time in Europe, this was not something you could get, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the nineties. <laughs> and you couldn't find a Reese's to save your life. So we decorated the tree with all those type of little American awesome. goodies. Edible tree. As, I love it. And he got some Christmas lights, but then we realized that they were American Christmas lights because they, they were and you know, for the American format like AC, you know, the electrical current system and so he took my friend's um, hair dryer, which was a European format plug-in, spliced them together, spliced the cords together. <laughs> we strung them around the tree and around the room. And the funny thing was, is that like, of course the, the voltage was wrong. And so periodically throughout the day, one of the like, the, the whole light strings would just go snap, get really bright and then just completely go out. You were working for your symbols. We were. We had so much fun. <laughs> it was a, it was a very memorable Christmas. Sheila, do you have any personal experiences to share with us about mall Santas, whether when <laughs> you were a kid or, you know, with your son? Well, I tell you, we lived hours away from the nearest mall when I was a kid. Um, so that's a no from that side of it, but we did want to make sure that we had some uh, images of my son when he was young uh, with a mall Santa. And so probably around the time he was five or six, we brought him. And the funny thing was, is like, here's a really joyful, happy little kid. And when he is told that he has to sit on the stranger's lap and pose for a picture and smile at the same time, like he was just he was floored by that. Yeah, yeah. this is not normally what mom and not, dad are telling him to do. Not, it's so not normal. <laughs> it's right? really confusing. And so he's game about it to a certain extent. And the picture that we have is extraordinary. It's, it's one for the ages because he's sitting on Santa's lap, but he is straining himself as far away from Santa's person as he can. And he has a smile on his face, but it's like one of those like fence-like cringed, clenched teeth smile that's like, my mom's telling me I have to do it and in his eyes it's just death-like fear oh <laughs> yeah you it see is a, a crack lot of that. i mean it's a trope right in right. popular culture so why do we continue to subject our children to this what let's dive into this whole idea Absolutely. of you know what is this about santa a that that somebody at some point thought was somehow endearing and meaningful and warm and jolly and all of this, but somehow generation after generation of kids, you know, it seems as likely to be terrified as delighted to right. sit on his lap and tell him his, you know, deepest desires for Christmas. Absolutely. Well, I think it's ingrained in us. And I, I mean that at this like deep, I want to say like cellular level. I certainly don't mean that biologically, but maybe metaphorically, because we have been selling, celebrating some sort of father Christmas, good Saint Nick, jolly old Santa Claus type of figure for eons as a human race. And yeah very much so in the European communities where up in the north of the world where it gets dark, so dark and so early during the winter months, right? So it's not a surprise that we start to 
I mean, certainly there are, there are many and very diverse traditions that stem way back into multiple cultures and they start to have small associations, you know, the sort of maybe just the time of year or maybe festivals that are associated with um, lights during the long winter months or small gifts given, you know, during a, a certain time. And all of these have over the, the hundreds and hundreds and literally thousands of years that we've been celebrating these things merged in different cultures to form things that people are familiar with today. And here in the United States, it's mall Santas, right? Um, or jolly <laughs> old Saint Nick. You know, yeah, everything you said is so sort of, you know, elegant and poetic about, you know, um, crushing dark and, and the need to, to boost one's spirit in the far north. And then we're run mall Santas. Mall Santas, <laughs> right? <laughs> what a sad end point. Oh. <laughs> No, I, I mean, it's just the most recent thing. And we've got this, is it any wonder that we have this like incarnation that's like fat and jolly and is like the, the picture of... Garish. Yes. Well, the, and the picture of like commercialism and the picture of like uh, wealth, really. I mean, if fatness itself is a, is a kind of a symbol of that. And the gift giving, this generosity um, is, is another kind of symbol of the wealth that we have. It's no surprise. And I know that the, the mall Santa really tradition stems back to the golden age of the United States when we were, you know, finally coming into our own as a, as a nation. We were very wealthy because of the, you know, the, um, the industrial revolution had finally happened here. We were able to compete with Europe and uh, to, to think of some of these, these things kind of coming together in wealthier cities and being kind of spread through images that we had um, at the time is not very surprising. It resonates with us, I think, everywhere. Oh, it sure does. And what is it about the modern American Santa that, that does kind of harken back to these earlier iterations of him? Are, are there any symbols that, that endure? Well, I think that there, there are several. Um, certainly the gift giving is the one that we maybe most associate with Santa, at least not a, a, apart from his, how he looks visually. And, you know, there's, we can trace some of this back to like a fourth century. Um, St. Nicholas, where we get the name St. Nick, was actually a Greek uh, bishop of the Christian faith, but on the, the Greek side of things, the Eastern European um, Orthodoxy. And uh, he was really well known for giving very generous gifts to the poor and um, even like, pulling people out of poverty at, at times. And over the, over the eras and certainly during the Middle Ages, um, some of these traditions became more and more associated with certain times of the year. Um, he had a name day, for example, on December 6th, which was already well into the winter up into the north. And then, you know, later on, it gets slowly moved towards um, the, the solstice, right? The longest night of the year. And then, of course, you know, countries celebrating on December 24th, maybe some, some on December 25th, these Christmas tides or Yule tides, celebrations of this nature. And this gift getting gets kind of spread across different traditions. And it's, it's a really wonderful thing that it's like connected to, to um, a Christian tradition. But, you know, even Martin Luther started saying like, well, we want to give gifts, but let's focus it on the children. Um, and because children are the most Christ-like among us and Christ is the bringer of the ultimate gift, 
Um, but St. Nicholas kind of remained as this like popular figure for embodying that idea. And I think, I mean, this is my own interpretation, but I think that um, the embodiment of ideas in people, in actual specific figures is something that we have, at least stemming from the kind of this European tradition can really understand. We had people who were like lords and ladies of the feast, you know, they were nominated to be the nominee, like the representation of that feast, right? We have um, people who personify light and personify generosity and personify this and that, right? We have today, we have the personification of justice and liberty, right? They're, they're people who represent that. And so I think that some of these figures we have in European tradition from mall Santas to Saint Nick to Father Christmas, Père Noel in France, Sinterklaas in the Netherlands, good King Wenceslas, right? Even Odin himself from the Norse tradition is actually tied to some ancient, ancient Yuletide traditions. Yeah, which themselves are thought to have involved gift giving. It's it's amazing, mm -hmm. actually. Well, it's so funny to see some connections between all of these ancient customs, ancient personifications, um, the Yuletide celebration, for example. There's, I mean, for many in many places, it was a 12-day festival. We always talk about the 12 days of Christmas, right? But many of us are like, wait a minute. Well, Some of us sing about it off tune. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, as a child, I was like, wait a minute, how come there are 12 days of Christmas but we only yeah, celebrate it one day, one. right? And then my mom would explain that it was the 12 days of Epiphany where the, the three magi were, you know, coming to see the Christ in the manger. And, but I mean, there's a 12 day festival associated with Yule that stems back to the Vikings, right? And they, the farmers would bring sacrifices of their best meat, the roast beast, right? Oh, we just <laughs> watched the Grinch, the roast oh, beast, I love indeed. That. <laughs> well, you know, they, they, they would bring their best wines and their best meads and their best beers. And they would all circle around a fire that never died, right? They'd try to keep that fire going as much as possible because it was symbolic. And so we share these things, like as far back as some of these ancient traditions were like, oh, 12 day festival, oh, drinking, feasting, roast beast. <laughs> so how does Santa really stack up against say, you know, Odin <laughs> of, the, of the Viking ilk? What does his outfit mean symbolically, do you think, about our more recent European cultures that created Santa in the current you know, kind of consumer mold. The stereotypical red and white uh, suit that we now have associated with him, that all the mall Santas wear, the, the red hat with the, the white fur trim and the jacket and all that, that is definitely um, something that has certainly taken cues from some of the European um, images and personifications, but has been kind of pushed forward by commercial touches, you know, whether it's Coca-Cola or whether it's like Thomas Kincaid or whatever it might be. Uh, for example, in the Tudor period in England, uh, Father Christmas began to be pictured and he would wear green. Um, but his long green, usually velvet, but some sort of rich, dark, you know, material that was super warm that would kind of represent this warm was also tinged with fur on the inside and trimmed on the um, on the edges and that kind of gives us some of our first kind of cues about that trimming on the edge even though it was a different color certainly the characters like 
Père Noël, Santa Claus, they have to wear these really warm cloaks and coats all lined with fur to keep them warm on the dark nights. Whether it's delivering gifts or whether it's delivering Christmas cheer, right? They need to be or, or warm. Or just making the presents all year round, right? It's <laughs> cold up in the North Pole. <laughs> right? Well, that I think that kind of stems as from our own sense of commercialism because like how else can you give gifts to all the children unless you were making gifts all year. One of the fascinating things from um, my son's childhood that he's taken forward is that my brother, his uncle, works uh, for the Air Force. And um, they have this fun thing with uh, NORAD, right? Um, and they, they pretend to trace Santa oh, Claus digitally. Yeah, that, my children like have always loved that. That was cool to watch because, on the computer. Of course, because if the military oh. was tracking him, then wow, this must then be real. real. Well, yeah. it's not just that. It was a wonderful tool for parents trying to get kids to bed, right? Well, I don't know right. about your son, but my daughters, if I said, oh my gosh, he's close. <gasps> You're not in bed yet. They would skedaddle and dive into bed and we would not hear from them again until, That's well, right. five in the morning. But <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Sheila, can you talk a little bit about the symbolism around the Christmas tree? Oh, yes. Actually, I love this because... I was fortunate enough to go to school in Strasbourg, France. And Strasbourg is a place that's gone back and forth between Germany and France um, over you know, centuries. But um, many people know this, the Christmas tree tradition as German, but the Strasbourgeois, they claim it as their own. They claim that the very first Christmas tree was erected in their town center, not to be outdone by anyone in Germany, right? Martin and Luther Germany included. Germany does Christmas right. I mean, oh, that, that's, Germany, that's yes. the king of kings if you can right. claim that <laughs> oh they have such wonderful traditions there and you know I, I did get to share in some of those traditions um strasbourg has a still wonderful tradition of erecting all these stalls in the kind of the courtyard around their cathedral in the center of the city and all these people have handmade gifts that they make throughout the year much like santa claus i was gonna North say Pole, right <laughs> And they sell these wares, their ornaments, you know, their the Christmas tradition, this foods and whatnot. You can walk along and get this pint of what they call a glue wine. It's glue like wine. The, I was going to yes. say, oh, Sheila, I've been to Strasbourg <laughs> at Christmas, and it is te it's te it's France, but it has it changed hands back and forth, hasn't it? Or at least culturally, yes, definitely pulls greatly on the German tradition. But it oh does. my goodness, it was one of the the most sort of magical Christmases really I ever is. had, and. Uh. And it was, it's about those physical trappings and, and the symbols of it all. So oh, it's wonderful. You can buy those tiny, like little rocking horses and whatnot, just going. And each of them is almost decorated as if they were the stable, you know, where in the, where the manger was found with Christ in it. it it's very. Yeah. These are not book. canvas tents. These mm -mm. are absolutely magical. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. And, you know, it, a lot of people kind of ask, well, wait a minute, what is, I mean, there was certainly no Christmas tree at the birth of Jesus, right? Which is right. what a lot of our, it's funny, we almost none of our Christmas traditions and Christmas symbols actually come from the Bible. I don't want to say none of them, because of course you might have the three wise men, you've got the, the star in the Christmas sky, star, yeah. right? The, the manger itself, when people put up crushes at Christmas, it symbolizes, you know, it's a complete recreation of these scenes. But when we think about Christmas trees, it's fascinating because evergreens themselves become a symbol that transcend 
not just Christmas, but I mean, they, they have been used in winter months, in winter celebrations. I mean, before Christ was even a twinkle in his father's eye. I mean, I shouldn't say it like that because I, you know, there are people that say he's, he was ever present, right? But that's my, right. There are people saying that, you know, certain, certain ladies were immaculate. So. <laughs> right, right. But before earth, yeah, before Christ was on earth um, at, you know, born, born to a, the Virgin Mary, um, the the Egyptians would actually spread evergreens, which were for them palms, which never faded. They didn't they didn't die in the winter months. And in Egypt, it's not quite as cold during winter, but they still symbolized the ever living power of their sun god Ra. And you know, not to get too far into this, but you know, there were distinct efforts to attach Christ and his symbolism as the son of God to the most powerful gods who represented the sun and the, the never dying sun, the always returning sun, you know, the sun that would bring life to the earth um, in the Christian tradition and in the, the they would attach that to the pagan traditions as well. So Roman traditions and Egyptian traditions. And so we first have some of these that we know about in Egypt with these palms, but then the Romans would celebrate Saturnalia um, in the longest months of the winter or the longest nights of the winter. And they would decorate their houses with evergreens because of course at its most simple, the evergreen doesn't die when all the other plants in the world die during the cold months. And so it becomes this really strong symbol of life that will continue when it's the hardest to continue. And that is, of course, what Christ is symbolizing when he is born, that life will continue. Everlasting life will continue through him. He triumphs over death when he is eventually resurrected. And so there are these associations that slowly come into being. And then when the Christmas tree is erected in Strasbourg or someplace in Germany, people start decorating it with lights. People start decorating it with presents for the kids. People start standing around it and singing of their faith. And people start standing around it and bringing warmth and community in the dark months of the year. You can kind of see how that stems, you know, a little bit from these just basic associations of like, oh, it's still green in the winter. Isn't it pretty? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. And let's make it more beautiful, right? right. You know, but I love, I love how you can really trace that direct line back. And I think that's a, just a classic example of a very savvy um, assimilation Mm -hmm. of practices that went before by newcomers in an area, for example, that, that want to be recognized and accepted and legitimated. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, um, I, I have to say, sorry to, to sort of doubt the exact verisimilitude of everything stated in the Bible, but, um, you know, in fact, it isn't actually stated in the Bible that December 25th is when Christ right. was born. But in fact, it's suspiciously close to when Yule was celebrated, wasn't it? In, right. for example, pagan, pagan Europe. Um, pagan Europe. And a lot of these, you know, that, that was Rome in particular, but many uh, great civilizations that existed. That was one of their, their uh, great abilities was to kind of um, attach and assimilate people's own religions by um, over mapping their own beliefs on top of them. So you get these cultural blends that are really wonderful when you start looking into them, why we have certain practices around certain times of the year. And certainly with the, the solstice um, and the, in winter and the dark months of the year and these ideas around fire and community and feasting, even when food might be scarce, is a really lovely thing that we can trace back to some of the roots of our humanity, I think. 
one of the things that uh, we always love to do is pick out the Christmas tree. And when I grew up in Oregon, of course, they were all around us. They hardly cost a thing. Um, and so I was always kind of wide eyed with with optimism about what would fit in uh, the living room. And oh. when I when I got married, I brought the same kind of optimism to that. And of course, I live in Massachusetts now in a Cape Cod with low ceilings. And every year I get a, a Christmas tree that's way too high. And so we actually use as a Yule log, well, we don't burn it, but we put candles in it. The very first cutting from our very first Christmas tree as a married oh. couple, we took off about a foot and a half because of course I overestimated oh. how much we could fit. And we bored some holes in it and we use it for candles every year. And, you know, it's it's a lovely tradition for us. It is. That, that is the most wonderful way to go into marriage with unbounded, unbridled optimism right. grounded in an evergreen object. Oh, I that's a wonderful think the way to say symbolism it. is exquisite there, Sheila. But, you know, I think that all of us, we, we all talk about our own traditions. Like we ask each other, we say, what are your traditions? And you know, we've been talking a little bit about mall Santas and like what kind of commercialized kind of branding of Santa Claus uh, we've had. And I think a lot of it, it becomes very American. It becomes very attuned to our culture here in the United States, but it also becomes attuned to like our very own experiences, the movies that we watch with our family, that we form little sayings about, little traditions about, the pictures that we see, the cards that we share, the food that we eat. So we all have very interesting traditions that are not as homogenous as they might sound, even though, you know, it's a little bit like those Christmas movies, like the Hallmark Christmas movies. It's like they had a deck of cards where they had a bunch of stereotypes all lined up and they kind of shook the deck and they dished out six or 12 of them and they made a movie out of whatever came out. So it's like, maybe it's yeah. Cabin in the Woods. Maybe it's European traditions or fireplaces. Maybe it's a Christmas prince, you know, maybe it's a Christmas baby or, you know, someone finding their 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 um, magical lost love or something. I don't know. But, you know, you shake these up, these traditions up a little bit and you get these new ones. And every so often you have one, I think, that permeates the kind of collective consciousness of a, of a country. You know, there are certainly movies out there that we can point to that resonate with us. What is it like? White Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life. Um, maybe Love Actually, although I don't know that there are necessarily traditions that come with that. Elf is a huge one in our house, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we always quote from it around the holidays. We might want to laugh a little bit at some of the commercialization that happens around Christmas, but in a way, commercialization is another way of recognizing, certainly it was to, to push a certain cultural agenda and to profit from it, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all bad. We can take away from it these certain things, these wonderful uh, histories, these wonderful moments from our past where we gather around, whether it's a Yule log or a Christmas tree or a roast beast or a Santa Claus photo from the mall that turned out terribly. <laughs> these all become layered it's on It's more memorable for it, right? Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. when you kind of file that away in your mind and, and your photo albums of all of the many memories that have been recorded. I don't know, it's sort of fun. Well, I have to say that when we had that photo taken with my son and his facial expression was so awful, the poor young man running the photo booth was saying, we can redo it if you'd like. <laughs> 
and my husband. Like really, we've already got a big therapy bill in our future for our son. Please don't do it again. No, in fact, my husband, without missing a beat, he said, "Oh no, that one is the keeper." Love it. Sheila, other than Coca-Cola, do you know of any commercial brands that have used Santa to, you know, elevate or or create their own holiday campaign or just sort of try to put a stake in the ground, culturally speaking? Oh, you know, I think Coca-Cola, at least for us in the United States, is the most famous example. And I can't call to mind a specific national brand that has done that. At the same time, I mean, every mall Santa that's out there is an effort to like bring people to the stores in the malls. Every time there was a department store who put together those fantastic window displays every Christmas. Oh, yeah. That was an effort to to kind of brand Christmas as something they uniquely do. I mean, the Macy's Thanksgiving parade that ends with Santa Claus. You know, it's like, okay, that's official, everybody. Thanksgiving is over. Santa's (laughs) it's here. That I think that's a very good example of the the branding. And Macy's owns that, right? It's their parade. It's in a way they've put their stamp on Christmas because of that. Oh, I agree. Yeah. But I think I think we all want to kind of profit from and associate ourselves with such a happy, jolly fellow, right? Don't we? Don't we? Sheila, thank you so much for joining us to dive really deep, frankly, into the roots of today's Mall Santa, awash with all this consumerism, which, you know, interestingly, I think there's probably not a whole lot that uh, attaches to Santa and that gift-giving sense of Christmas that we can't trace back into our ancient human roots. Well, thank you so much for for allowing me to be here. It was a distinct pleasure as always. Oh, we'll have you anytime. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you so much. And Merry Christmas. Happy Merry holidays Christmas to you. <laughs> Happy holidays. Let's get back to Coca-Cola. Even if you've never heard of Thomas Nast and his iconic Santa imagery, surely a name like Norman Rockwell rings a bell. Well, in the 1920s, artists like Rockwell put out several illustrations of Santa, and for the most part, they're on par with our modern perception. So why does Coca-Cola claim that they're the ones to have given Santa his historic makeover? Fake news? The short answer? Uh, We don't know. But you have to agree, it's a good look and a great origin story for any brand, even if it's a misrepresentation of what really happened. On Coca-Cola's site, under 125 years of advertising, a factoid on the page about the 1930s states, seeking to create an advertising program that links Coca-Cola with Christmas, artist Haddon Sundblom creates his first illustration showing Santa Claus pausing for a Coke. For the next three decades, he paints images of Santa that help to create the modern interpretation of Saint Nick. Huh, are we sure about that Coca-Cola? Seems like we were already there, hon. To many, it's no surprise to learn of the oftentimes cutthroat world of advertising. But hey, healthy competition means healthy business. The holiday season is no exception. In fact, depending on how you look at it, it might be host to the worst sides of it. What's interesting is that before the end of the 19th century, on the subject of holidays, most retailers didn't share the same view as the ones today. In fact, They were suspicious of holidays and lamented them for the opportunities they created for laziness and distraction. 
Hard work couldn't be done if people were out celebrating or getting drunk on the farm. How American. But once the department store Santa became ingrained, brands of all kinds began to capitalize on the holiday cheer, tapping into the many ways the holidays could boost profit. Now that's even more American. Retailers then began to run specific holiday campaigns, competing with each other to have the most elaborate and eye-catching storefronts. Thus began the Macy's era. Santa Claus would prove to be a keystone figure in the retail industry's changing views of the holiday season, even brandishing its power to mold Santa into a mascot for corporate profit. How? I think one of the reasons why parents so quickly embraced Santa Claus is because he provided a way of disguising the commercial origins of toys. Lisa Jacobson, professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara says. And retailers knew this. According to her, Santa was originally seen only as a benevolent gift-giving figure, rewarding those children who had been well-behaved throughout the year. However, holiday commercialism began to add something else to this narrative. Santa gave gifts to the good kids, sure. But what about the <clears throat> naughty kids? Well, they were whipped with switches, of course. Nothing like a healthy serving of Christmas corporal punishment to really get the chestnuts roasting. What's that? Oh, I was supposed to take out that last line. Huh, so look at that. Anyway, having Santa be both a grantor and destroyer of dreams gave parents a psychological way out so they didn't have to feel guilty about, I don't know, just being nice to their kids. As Jacobson explains it, Santa Claus is one way Americans resolve their ambivalence about gift giving to children. Parents can supply the more practical utilitarian gifts or the kinds of toys that are going to be edifying or educational, but Santa Claus can give the bells and whistles. Pretty complex stuff. So Santa is both a benevolent gift-giving legend and a pawn of the modern holiday industry. Cool. To this day, marketers are constantly trying to create new holidays and events, all in the hopes that they will carve out corresponding seasons of spending. Have you ever noticed all those car deals during President's Day? What is that all about? Is the insinuation that the Founding Fathers only drove the best cars? Still, nothing has yet matched the success of the calendar gear's last two months. Mall Santas are an extension of the retail sector's obsession with elevating the holiday spending season. They're literal embodiments of a symbol that shaped the public's perspective on the holiday. Many of us remember, with either joy or abject horror, the first time we got to sit on Santa's knee. Oh, that feeling of barely gathering the courage to stutter the name of the toy karaoke set you've been dying for, only to accidentally get overzealous and threaten to follow home one of the elves to get insider information to confirm if the deal had been made or not. Huh? Oh, just me? In recent decades, the mall Santa image has itself gotten a unique makeover, differentiating itself from the standard Santa image laying into one that is more self-aware, self-parodying. Films like Bad Santa, Trading Places, Elf, and of course, A Christmas Story. No, no, I want an official red under carbon. I should do an my lay rifle. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. All depict portrayals of Saint Nick that are less than savory. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Whether they're disgruntled retail employees, drunk sipping flasks in the break room, or just full out unhinged. This movie character trope that diverged from the wholesome commercial image of Santa reveals an interesting thing about our culture. Why is it so funny to see someone on the brink of collapse donning the famed red suit and cringing inside as, in their eyes, bratty kids bark their Christmas list to them? And 
why is it so sad? Maybe because it reveals the inherent hypocrisy of holiday commercialism, that the good cheer and glossy products in the storefront are only just suits themselves, covering up the corporate greed and manic stress underneath. The rust under the shine, perhaps. Corporate shade aside, it's clear that Santa is no stranger to the media. And the image of the round, red, and jolly gift giver continues to dominate the industry of holiday joy that flares up around this time every year. For some, the red and white suit, black boots, long beard, and booming laugh trigger holiday PTSD, bloated credit card bills, but not batteries included. It's never the darn batteries. So what, it's like a pack of 10 or nothing? Really? Because I only needed like four at the mo- Anyway, sorry, back on track. But such is the power of advertising. Effective marketing plays to our base emotions as human beings, stroking our egos with one hand while grabbing our insecurities with the other and breaking them apart, using our own trauma and self-perceptions against us for the sake of getting us to open our wallets. The industry of holiday cheer does the same and it makes use of one of the most effective protagonists in all of advertising history to do so. Before his death, James Edgar had countless times dressed up as Santa Claus at his retail store outside of Boston. He had made a long and difficult journey to come to a new land before reinventing himself, his community, and an entire business model. What's interesting is that he, in James Edgar fashion, liked to be mobile when portraying Santa, moving around his store and seeking out kids to interact with. The majority of department store Santas who followed were primarily stationary, letting the families and profits come to them. This is the main approach we still see today. But it really does shine a light on just how different James Edgar saw the whole affair. While it was certainly a genius business move, Edgar seemed less focused on the money when he dressed up as Santa. Instead, he understood more than anyone the nature of the responsibility of donning the red suit and the sheer power of the childhood joy it could bring. To Edgar, this was the currency that mattered. Commenting on his annual Santa exploits, Edgar once said, I've never been able to understand why the great gentleman lives at the North Pole. He's so far away, only able to see the children one day a year. He should live closer to them. And so, he did. The end. Thanks for listening to our holiday tale. You can follow Dr. Sheila Hoffman on Twitter at UCOMCuratrix. That's U-Q-A-M-C-U-R-A-T-R-I-X. We're also on Twitter at Working OT Series with plenty of exciting show updates, additional content, and a chance to win your very own time machine. Uh, well, I may have gotten a little carried away with that last one. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Happiest of holidays to you. Until next time.